This morning's scripture comes to us from 1 Corinthians 6, 12-14. All things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the, the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray now that you would focus our minds upon your word and the message of your word, Lord, that you would help us to rightly understand Scripture as it was intended to be understood by the Holy Spirit, by you, by the Apostle Paul. And Lord, we pray that you would enable these words to land on us with all of the weight and the force with which they were intended, and that we would not simply file away more theology on our mental shelves as we walk out the door but that these words would impact our approach to life. So, Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world and a culture, particularly in the United States, where the idea of self Autonomy reigns supreme. It is the American idol. There is nothing more important. There is nothing more valuable than self-autonomy. The idea that no one has the right to tell me how to live or how to behave what I can or can't do, or what I should think, or what I should believe. And yes, the government may do that, and to an extent, many Americans will submit to what the government says, but only because they don't want to end up in jail. By and large, most Americans believe that no one, not even the government, has the right to tell them how to live whether we're talking about owning guns or what we eat or how we live. Now, while this has, to some extent, always been a part of the American psyche from the very beginning, right? I mean, it, it, you know, the American culture just continues to echo the words of Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. I would rather die than not have freedom. 
But I don't think our founding fathers ever realized how far that whole idea of freedom would come. And we saw this up front and in our faces with all of its ugliness at the beginning of last year when uh, the, uh, the ruling, the uh, Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization ruling was first leaked, and then it was actually uh, published. The decision was made public, the decision that uh, finally overturned after 50 years, Roe v. Wade as bad constitutional law. But what we saw is that when that decision was leaked, people poured into the streets in, in droves, and they protested, and they were angry, and they blocked traffic, and they held up signs with all of these slogans that said things like, my body, my choice. Or keep your bands off my body. Or my life, my right. Not recognizing that the life growing within the woman's womb is not their life. It is a separate and distinct human life that God is intricately weaving together into his own image from the moment of conception. But even if they believe that, and some of them do, sadly, they agree it is a human life, it is a living being, it doesn't matter, my life, my right. But it doesn't end there. Now we have government officials. In their official capacity, we have public school officials, we have public health officials that are pushing the idea that all people, adults and children, have the right to choose their own gender. And it is such a sacred right that there are many school districts who are willing to help school children begin the transition of a, of a gene therapy of transitioning into whatever it is they want to transition into and keep it a secret from their parents. Because this is an inalienable right. Nobody has the right to tell you what to do or how to live or what you want to become. And it gets even worse than that. About a year ago, I found myself sitting in a medical office where they had a a television on and it was some daytime talk show and I can't remember what the talk show was now, but there was no sound, but they had the captioning on, so I'm reading it. But what caught my attention immediately was the appearance of the individual that was being interviewed. It turns out that the man who was being interviewed identified as a cat. He was convinced he was a cat who was mistakenly born in a human body. So much did he believe this that he had had surgery done to implant whiskers in his cheeks, to make his ears pointy, to sharpen his teeth so that he would look more cat-like. You laugh, but it was tragic. 
Because the sad thing was, is that the host who was interviewing him and everybody in the audience took him seriously. You poor individual. To be born in the wrong body, how horrible would that be? They felt compassion on this person. Recently, there's a film that has come out or is coming out. I'm not really sure. I don't plan to see it. So I'm clearly not endorsing it. But apparently, it is a, I've read a little bit about it. It's a semi-biopic, loosely based on the life of Steven Spielberg and his adolescent years, his first years as a filmmaker. I'm not going to share the title because I'm hoping nobody will watch it. But I don't want to see it simply because of the trailer. I've seen the trailer a couple times here and there. So it piqued my interest, and I went on and did some research. Like, what is this film actually about? There's one line at the end of that trailer that causes me to cringe every time I hear it. And it's a scene of his mother telling him at a young age, you do what your heart says you have to because you don't owe anyone your life. That is such bad theology. Because you owe God your life. Every human being owes God their life. Every human being has a duty and a responsibility to live their life for the glory of God, for his worship, for his honor, in obedience to him, because he is the creator, we are the creation. And it's those kinds of lines, it's that kind of philosophy that comes out of Hollywood that radically transforms the American culture. Yet this away, this American way of thinking influences the church more than we realize. It doesn't just transform the American culture, it transforms American evangelicalism, the idea that you do what your heart says you have to because you don't owe anyone your life. That's the problem that they had in the book of Judges. I just finished reading the book of Judges, a part of my morning devotional. And it's tragic the way it ends up. The story begins with they have entered into the promised land and it ends with them in a civil war and tribes fighting against other tribes to the extent that they completely wipe out the tribe of Benjamin. And the phrase that keeps being repeated throughout that book, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. My friends, we are not only living in the days of the judges, we've gone beyond it. Because as horrible as things were in the days of the judges, every male identified as a male. And every female identified as a female. And they all knew that they were human and born in the right body. We've taken the book of Judges and we've multiplied it exponentially. There is no king 
and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Paul, in this section, is dealing with a similar situation in the church in Corinth. We see that right at the beginning of the text where Paul cites a popular slogan that was circulating in the city of Corinth, at least according to biblical scholars. They believe that this was likely a popular slogan that was circulating in Corinth. He repeats it twice in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. And then he comments, but not all things are helpful. He says it again. You see it in quotes if you have the ESV. All things are lawful for me. And then he comments, but I will not be dominated by anything. We think that this is probably a popular slogan in the city of Corinth and possibly even in the church itself that they were still living out this idea because Paul will cite it again in chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but then he comments, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, and then he comments, but not all things build up. That's chapter 10, verse 23. Now, it's hard to know. What is difficult to know is if uh, Paul is simply citing a slogan that they would have heard in the city, or is Paul implying that the Christians in Corinth are actually living this way? Everything is lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. Either way, either way, we don't really know the answer to that question, but either way, it seems to be how they are living. They seem to be living that way, whether it's conscious or not, because this is the connection with verse 11. This is how the previous section, verses 9 to 11, flows into the section that we're in now. In verse 11, Paul said, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. They believe that. There's no indication that they were denying that in the book, that they were denying justification by faith alone. That's clear in books like Galatians. There's no indication here. And so it may be that what is happening in Corinth is that they're saying to themselves, yes, you're right, Paul, we were washed. We were justified. We were sanctified by faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, all things are lawful for me. We can live however we want. We're justified by faith alone. We listened to you, Paul. We get that. And so they took a libertine approach to Christianity. This may be why they did nothing about the the incestuous relationship that we read about in chapter 5, verse 1. Yeah, we know what that guy's doing, but look, we're justified by faith. All things are lawful for us. Thus, Paul says in verse 12, He's not disagreeing with them. He doesn't try to correct them on this. All things are lawful for me, but then he says, but not all things are helpful. Right? Not all things are helpful for you. Because Paul himself will make similar statements in 
1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Every good thing is given to us by God and should be received with thanksgiving. Right? There is nothing in this world that God created that in and of itself is sinful. We, as human beings, as believers, can participate in all of the things that God has created in this world. But then he qualifies, but not all things are helpful. In other words, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Paul will address this in chapter 8, verses 9 to 8, with the idea of uh, eating food. There he'll say, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do eat. In other words, that's Paul's way of saying, as a Christian, you can eat whatever you want. I mean, truly, there's no sin in eating whatever you want. But then he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, Paul. Yeah, but not all things are helpful. And that's something that we as Christians need to be mindful of. You know, some of you know I enjoy sports. I used to be a sports nut years ago. Uh, Once a year, I still become a sports nut for about a week and a half during the World Series. My wife knows, leave me alone. But there was a time, as a young believer, that I watched all of it, all the time. And the reality is there's nothing sinful about the game of baseball. It's one of the few sports today that I can still watch and not be afraid to Thank goodness they don't have a halftime show in baseball. (laughs) There's nothing sinful about it. It's a great sport. But watching it isn't going to help me become more like Christ. It's not going to help me in my sanctification. Watching hours and hours of it is not going to help me. What's going to help me is spending time in God's word. What's going to help me is spending time in prayer. What's going to help me is being in church. What's going to help me is being in life group. What's going to help me is being a part of an accountability group. Yes, all things are lawful. But you know, not everything is helpful. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. He then goes on to say, he quotes it again, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. There's a little bit of play on words that we kind of lose in the English um, because the word lawful and the word dominate in the ESV, if that's what you're using, in the Greek, they both share the same Greek root. They both share the same Greek root. So one way that it could be translated from the Greek is this way. All things are in my power, but I will not be overpowered by anything, is what Paul is saying. All things are in my power, but I will not be overpowered by anything. Paul wants them to understand that self-control, controlling one's passions, controlling one's appetite is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. 
Thus, not only is a libertine approach not helpful to us, and sometimes, as Paul talks about it in chapter 8, not helpful to our neighbors, right? The illustration that I use regarding myself, one of the reasons I stopped doing all of that is I realized my wife was being neglected. She doesn't like baseball. I can't understand why. But spending hours in front of a television while my wife is alone by herself reading a book is not healthy. It is not good. It is not biblical. Paul wants him to understand that self-controlling one's passions is a fruit of the Spirit. The libertine approach is not helpful to us and is not helpful for our neighbors but is antithetical to our freedom in Christ. It's antithetical to our freedom in Christ. As believers, yes, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and thus we are truly free. But according to Paul in Galatians 5.13, we ought to use that freedom to serve one another to sacrificially serve others. Christ did not set us free so that we could serve ourselves, so that we can think about ourselves, but so that we can serve other people. Not only that, but if we can't or won't control our passions and our appetites, if we can't or won't use our freedom to serve others, then we have become slaves of sin. That's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this. He's just finished arguing, particularly in chapters 3, 4, and 5 of Romans, that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so then he says this in chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Should we go on sinning? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Whatever you give into, whatever passions, whatever desires you give into, if you can't or won't control those, Paul says, you are a slave of sin. And sadly, if you're a Christian, it means that you have voluntarily made yourself a slave of sin. You have voluntarily gone back to your own slave, your old slave master, and are saying, have dominion over me and I'll do what you want. Paul wants them to understand, and we need to understand that that though, although nothing in this world, nothing in this world is forbidden by God, not everything is helpful. Only the Holy Spirit should control us. Only the Holy Spirit should be in control of our passions, of our appetites, of our desires. Paul then cites another popular quote that was 
circling around. Another popular slogan circling around in the city of Corinth. We see it in chapter 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, this one is a little bit more difficult to determine because remember that in the original Greek, there are no quotation marks. They, they didn't exist. They didn't use them. So we have to figure out where does the quote begin? Well, there's no discussion. There's no debate on where the quote begins. But where does the quote end? You'll see that if you have the ESV, they put the quotation marks after the second word food. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Close quote. And then Paul comments, and God will destroy both one and the other. However, the NIV puts the closing quotes after the word other. In other words, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, close quote. And then Paul comments, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. The New American Standard takes the wisest approach. They just don't put quotation marks. They leave it to the reader. You figure it out. And so the question is, where does the, and where does the close quote begin? Because if we go with the ESV, then Paul is saying that God will bring both our physical bodies and the food that we eat to nothing that eventually both our physical bodies and the food that we eat, he will bring them to nothing. However, that is hard to believe that those are the words of Paul in light of 1 Corinthians 15, which we will spend time in. He spends an entire chapter arguing for the spiritual and eternal value of the human body. And it's not going to be destroyed. It's not going to go away. So this would seem to contradict what Paul says in verse 15. Thus, I would argue that in light of the importance that he makes regarding the body in chapter 15, I think the NIV has it right. And, uh, and again, there is debate on this. Some theologians would go with the ESV, some go with the NIV. But I'm going to go with the group that says the NIV has it right because it's hard for me to see Paul making a statement like this in light of the extreme importance that he places on the human body. And so it would seem then that here is a slogan that the church in Corinth would be at least familiar with and probably impacted them more than they realize, right? Kind of like in America, you know, this whole idea of self-autonomy, you know, we may say theologically we disagree with that, but let's face it, Many of us are more impacted by the American way of thinking than we realize. And so the slogan has it, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach is meant for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, the logic that they are using is that, look, the stomach is meant for food. That's why it's designed, right, to put food in it. And food is meant for the stomach. That's why it exists, to put it in our mouths and eat it. So let's just do that with impunity. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It doesn't matter how much you eat. Eat whatever you want. Eat as much as you want, because someday both food and the stomach, our physical bodies, will be no more. That is the way the Romans and the Greeks thought, that the real person was our spirit. This body is just a casing for us to move around in 
And when we die, the body is useless. That's why they would burn their bodies. It's, it's irrelevant after death. There's no more need for it. And so the Greeks thought this way. And it would appear that the church in Corinth seemed to be influenced by that. They look, in terms of sexual immorality, because that's really what we're talking about here, right? Because Paul then says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. See, they're taking that same idea and they're applying it to sexual immorality. Well, the body is designed for sex and sex exists for the human body. And so let's just engage with impunity because someday the body's not going to be here and it doesn't really matter how we live. Let's just enjoy what this world has to offer in the here and now. Thus, this seems to influence, this seems to be the influence uh, on them regarding food, as we'll talk about in chapter 8, but also regarding uh, sex, particularly sexual immorality, which, by the way, that is exactly what Paul is talking about. Paul is being very clear that in and of itself, Sex is not sinful, right? God created it. He uses the word sexual immorality. The one Greek word behind those two words is the Greek word porneia. And it is a word that has to do with improper sexual relations in a way that God did not design it. And so they seem to be using this logic. The stomach is meant for food. The food is meant for stomach. And it is creating issues with their view of sexual relations. One, with prostitutes. You see that in verses 15 and 16. We'll deal with that more closely next week. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Uh, and so we will look more closely at that later. But it also seems to be skewing their view of sexual relations within marriage. Paul will deal with that in chapter 7, throughout chapter 7. And, of course, we also see that with their view of uh, in, in, uh, incestuous relationships that he dealt with back in chapter 5, verse 1. In other words, as I said, they seem to have the idea that the body was made for sex. Sex exists for the body. One day our bodies, and therefore sex, will no longer exist, so it doesn't matter how we live. God's going to destroy them both. But what is Paul's response to that? Notice his counter-argument. The body, so I think the close quote comes after the word other, and then Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In other words, our body, according to Paul, it's the Greek word soma, which means in Pauline theology, it's the whole of what we are. Because our body encases our spirit and our spirit is not just who we are. Our body is not just who we are. We are body and spirit. We are a living soul. So Paul says, our body, the whole of who we are, was made for God. It was made for the Lord to serve God, to worship God, to honor God. 
That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, for example, right? Paul says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that is in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies, it's the same Greek word, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Use your bodies for the glory of God. So don't get in your mind that when Paul uses that word soma, when he's using body, okay, so he's not referencing our spirit. He's only referencing what we do in the body. But what we do in the body is connected with our spirit. Every sin that we commit, which comes from the heart, according to Jesus, is committed by our bodies. Sins of the mind, sins of the eyes, right? Sins, emotions have to do with our body, sins of our hands, sins with our feet, sins with our reproductive organs, all are connected to our body. And what does God tell us in Isaiah 43, verse 7? That all humans were created for my glory. You were created for God's glory to bring him honor, to bring him praise in how you use your body and your mind and your mouth and your eyes. Thus, the primary purpose of the body, according to Paul, is not sex. It's the glory of God. God gave you a body so that you might use it to bring him glory and honor and praise. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, according to Paul. In other words, God exists. God exists not to serve our bodies, but to oversee and have dominion over our bodies because our bodies and everything in creation belong to him. That's what he means by that that second phrase. The body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. God is for the body. God exists to have dominion over the body, to rule over the body, to have authority over the body, and to direct how you use your body. In fact, that is the backdrop to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the text that I just cited. One verse before that, Paul says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. For all things are from him. Everything that we get that is good in life, according to James 1.17, comes from God. Everything is from God and all things are to God. All things are for God. All things were created for his glory. So that's Paul's first correction in this text. Our bodies are not primarily made for sex. Not that that is bad. 
It is good and holy and glorifying to God only within the confines of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman for a lifetime. Within that context, listen, it's an act of worship to God. It really is. It's an act of worship to God. It brings him glory and honor and praise. But anything other than that is treason to our creator. So Paul's first correction is our bodies are not made for sex. Our bodies are made for God's glory, his honor and praise. So honor God with your bodies is the point. Honor God with your minds. Honor God with your eyes. Honor God with your mouth. Honor God with your your appetites, your passions, your cravings. Honor God with your hands and your feet and above all, your reproductive organs. His second correction to the church in Corinth is in verse 14. And, right, so here's the second counter-argument to their slogan in verse 13. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, if the body was meaningless, why did God raise Jesus from the dead in bodily form? God raised the Lord and he will raise us from the dead in bodily form. Not just believers, but all human beings someday will be resurrected to life in bodily form to stand judgment before God. What does that mean? The body has spiritual, eternal value. You know, you go back and read the creation story, and humans are the only part of creation that we are told that God formed the man, like building a sandcastle. It's the image of the creator getting down on his, on his knees and bringing together and shaping it, molding it, Human beings are his prize creation. So God says, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us back to life as well. In fact, Paul goes into great lengths, as I said earlier, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but in chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 11, he argues strongly for the resurrection of Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. There were eyewitnesses. He appeared to great many people. And then because of Christ's resurrection, he argues that we too will be raised from the dead in verse 12. For if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is all a waste of time. There is a bodily resurrection And then he'll go on to say in that same chapter in verse 51, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
Look, my friends, it is no accident and it's not a coincidence that this massive letter concludes with an extensive argument on the resurrection. I mean, chapter 16 is just wrapping up things. Collections for the saints, his plans, his travel plans, final greetings. That's chapter 16. This book culminates with the bodily resurrection and this huge uh, lengthy argument for a bodily res resurrection. Why? Because Paul wants him to know, and we should know, that what we do in this body, what we do with this body, what we do to this body, particularly if it's permanent, Christians ought to be careful about doing anything permanent to this body, because Paul will later argue in chapter 6 that this body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God who purchased it with his own blood. Paul is arguing to the church in Corinth that what we do in this body, with this body, and to this body matters because we are made in God's image. And there is a future resurrection. Therefore, this body is sacred. It's sacred. This is an important lesson for all of us because keeping this in mind will prevent us from doing a great many foolish things. It really will. Because before we do anything in this body, with this body, or to this body, we should search the scriptures and determine clearly, is this pleasing to God? Does God allow this? And if there's any doubt Better to be safe than sorry. You know, I say that because, you know, we, 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 um, we uh, um, speak ill about, you know, the Jews a lot. We see that in the Bible. Orthodox Jews, oh, their legalistic tendencies, their, 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 their self-works and, and law-keeping and all of that that won't even save them. But there is some things that we can learn from Orthodox Jews today. You know, the third commandment is, thou shalt not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that mean exactly? What, what does that mean? Because the Hebrew word shav means not to use it flippantly or irrelevantly, right? So what does that mean? They weren't sure. So what was their approach? We just won't say it. Rather than run the risk of sinning against our creator, we just won't say it. And when we see the name of God written in the Bible, we'll simply say, Adonai. We could learn a lot from them. Because the evangelical approach is to say, well, what does this commandment mean? Well, I don't know. Some say I should do it. Others say I shouldn't. I'm going to go with the one that says it's okay for me to do. Because as Christians, we tend to want to see how close we can dance to the edge and still make it into heaven. If we're not sure this is something that I should do or not do, well, I'll just do it, and God will forgive me later. There's grace. Right? How many of us watch television shows, and we're thinking, maybe I shouldn't be watching this. Uh, you know what? God will forgive me later. There's grace. We could learn a lot from, our, from Orthodox Jews. I'm not sure if I should be looking at this. You know what? Turn it off. Better safe than sorry. Just don't do it. Oh, but I'm going to miss the grand finale. My life will be incomplete. 
In the end, here's Paul's point, in case you missed it. Our bodies, our mind, our mouth, our ears, our eyes, our passions, our appetites, our feet, our hands, our reproductive organs were not created for us. They weren't created for us. They weren't created for you. They were created for God's glory, for his honor, for his praise, for his worship. So at the end of the day, if you are not living your life for the glory of God, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your life. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would help us to ever keep this in mind, that how we use our eyes, what we look at, how we use our mind, how we use our time, what we do with our bodies, is not just for us to decide. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to you. And we pray that that truth would ever drive how we live, how we spend our time, what we do in our activities. Not out of a sense of legalism, not of a, as a sense of fear, but out of love and gratitude for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name we pray.